I did want to say, much like JC before me, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians. So there might be some stuff we talk about today that might be uncomfortable. Heads up. So if you've got a kiddo and you're like, I'm not comfortable. Blast is a good place, although they're going to learn the gospel back there, right? So praise God. Just a heads up on that. So I'm going to go ahead and dismiss the blast students. The rest of us can continue the sermon series. We started a while back. Again, I said it earlier, but thanks. I thank God for the men who preached while I was on vacation. That was awesome. So we're going to be back in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the, uh, the title, the sermon series is called Being the Church, and it's what it means to actually be uh, the church together to God's glory for a purpose, right? He's called people out for a purpose. We've been talking about that for a while. And then um, you might see some connections. I know Dale and Steve preached off of 1 Kings, but there's some connections with what JC shared about choosing who you're going to serve and about letting the old part of our life come back into our life. And like I said to you, today we're going to kind of finish up the introduction, if you will, to the book of Corinthians, uh, and then Paul's going to get to this point. Which is kind of funny because he's had a lot of points already and we're just getting started. So today we're actually going to take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians 5. But before we do, I wanted to ask a question. And this is a real question. You can really respond to it. You can raise your hand or say something if you want to. But how many of you have heard someone say that Christians are just too judgmental? Anybody ever heard that? I hear that all the time. You guys are so judgmental. Uh, how many people have, have you ever heard someone say that Christians should never judge? Don't judge. A few of us. All right. I think I've heard both those things a lot, depending on the conversation. Uh, sometimes when people are hostile to the gospel, or they say, oh, Christians are so judgmental. And I go, okay, fair enough. It happens. Uh, and other people say, we should never judge lest we be judged. Don't ever, you know. And uh, we got some things to learn on this. So this morning, the whole topic, the whole idea is actually on judgment. So that'll be pretty fun, uh, starting where JC left off two weeks ago, if you were here. So I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to pray for inspiration, that we could rightly divide God's word, rightly understand it, and then apply it to our lives. Because it's not about knowing what the scriptures say. It's about living our lives differently because we've encountered the God of the Bible. The, the, God wrote this down to reveal himself to us that we might be changed. And I hope you understand that. And so I hope you come this morning expectantly that God would shape your life in some new way that you could become more like him and, um, and more, whatever, called according to his purpose in your life. So let's pray and then we'll get into the text. Father God, we thank you so much for the chance to worship you and talk about the great work you've been doing amongst us. And that's just one of the things. There's been so many things, Lord. And by elevating one thing, we don't mean to de-elevate anything else because your work is always, always glorious, always glorifying, and always for your namesake. And so I, I pray that all of us are encouraged. We share in ministry together. Um, I pray this morning, Lord, and I, I claim all the time, no special knowledge of my own, Lord. I mean, we're just sinners who've been redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We haven't figured it out. And yet you poured it on us. And this morning then, those of us who've had your grace experience, we're going to ask, Father, that you would teach us. Because we know we're not right. We know things are amiss in our hearts. We know we fall off on this issue of judgment. And so this morning, would you give us a, a clarity of your gospel call? Would you help us to understand and, and really apply it to our lives? Maybe we struggle with judgmentalism. Then help us become less judgmental. Maybe we think we should never judge. Help us to become more discerning. Whatever your spirit wants for us, Father, would you teach us? We ask, um, your word says, if we ask for wisdom, you always give it. Give us wisdom. In judgment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5.12. So go ahead and grab a Bible if you brought one or your phone or your iPad or whatever and, and, and take a look at the scriptures. It's important to get eyes on it. And we're going to pick up, and JC mentioned this to you a few weeks ago, but we're going to pick up where he left off kind of, sort of. And, and he talked a lot about some difficult business in the church, right? And JC did a great job of handling that scripture. But we're going to pick up in verse 12. And I just want to read it and talk about it for a minute. And if you got an engagement sheet this morning, hopefully you got one, there is a space to, to fill in these questions and you might not agree, but we'll talk about it as we go, and you can talk about it afterwards. Here's what the word says. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And then he quotes, expel the wicked brother from among you, or expel the wicked man from among you. JC had to preach that very delicate text on sin and egregious sin in the church. It was not only that he said even pagans wouldn't tolerate that kind of sin, and yet the church is tolerating that sin. There was something in this experience for the church in Corinth that they go, that's fine. You remember that Corinth was a very secular place. It was the crossroads of the world, and there was lots going on. And it was easy to kind of go, yeah, I believe in Jesus too. But that's, all, that's it. It's just another thing in my life. And there's a lot of gods, and Jesus is a God. And, but this was written to the church of Jesus Christ. Those who have been bought by the blood, listen to me, those who've been, who are calling out on his name, that's what the word says, all, to those everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord, that's who this letter is written to. And so if you're calling on the name of the Lord, it's bigger than just you saying, and Jesus also in my life, right? There's a truth claim being made by him over us. But then Paul makes this, dissent, this, this the discernment here, and he says, what business is it us to judge those outside of the church? Here's the first point on the fill-in-the-blank stuff. Judgment in the church is for the church. That's what it's for. It's for the church. And Paul makes a great point to say it's not for the world. What business is it of mine to judge the world? It's not his concern. Unless you think, well, that's that one verse. If you look back in verses 9 and 10, which J.C. preached on, he said, I have written to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral. He's like, if you're going to have to leave all the sexually immoral people of the world, you can never go outside again. That's not my concern. What does he say in verse 10, though? He says, not at all meaning the people of this world or the greedy or swindlers, adulterers. In this case, you have to leave the world. But in verse 11, I'm writing to you that you would not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother that's a believer but is sexually immoral. So he's like, this is for the church. He then says the same thing again. Judgment in the church is for the church. And by the way, I did a little in my slides, which are now gone, it's my error. I did a little thing there where it's for the big C church. Now, it's for the little C church, right? In the church, it's for the church, but it's for those who claim to be believers. How does this work itself out in our lives? Often, we will encounter people, and people encounter us in our sin. And one of the fundamental questions is, we ought to ask one another is, are you believing in Jesus Christ? Do you believe the gospel? And that might be a hard question to ask. And then someone says, well, what's that mean? Well, that's a great place to start the conversation. Do you believe he died for your sins? Or they would tell you that. Well, I believe he died for my sins and all my sins are forgiven. Praise the Lord. So you believe what the scriptures say about Jesus. Yeah. Well, then guess what? Then we speak to each other in love about sinful behavior. That's not because we're trying to make each other righteous. It's, well, it kind of is. But it's not because we're trying to do it of our own effort. But it is for the church. That's what Paul says. Um, it's concerning the church. All right, so I'm going to go, um, yeah, we're going to continue on then. So he says, God, and then he says this, is it not, he asks the question, 
are you not to judge those inside the church? So he makes a distinction between those who are of the world and those who are in the church. And he says, well, there's a presumptive yes. Yeah. Why would that be? Let me just, let me just break it down real quick. They get a letter from Paul about the sinfulness, and the church turns and goes, yeah, you're right. The world is a sinful place, Paul. He's like, no, talking to you. They're not our concern. You are our concern. You remember Paul said, I'm like a father to you. You're like my spiritual children. I'm deeply concerned for your spiritual growth. This judgment is for the church. The discernment of sin, and judgment has a bad rap, right? We think about judgment as being like harsh and condemning and all that, but it's a discernment of the truth. That's the the idea of judgment. And so Paul has an expectation of judgment inside the church here. You can see that. Of course we should. And then he says one more thing about judgment, and we move on from this one verse. But he says this, God will judge the world. Now, now that might sometimes, again, you know, people love to wallow in that. You know, God's going to judge you. Yeah, God's going to judge us all, right? I mean, he's not just going to judge the world and go, church, pass, right? He's going to go, you are believing in my son, Jesus Christ. I bought you with his blood, and you behaved like that, right? Like, he, Paul says what? Last week we talked about, last time I was here, about as one who's escaping from the flames, <laughs> you know, it's like by the skin of our teeth. That's not what we want. No, he says, God's going to judge everyone outside and inside the church. That's what the gospel's about, the judgment of God. Why did the cross become God's redemptive purpose? It's because he poured out his wrath and judgment upon himself in the cross. Come on. Why do we sing hallelujah? Glory be to our great God because he preserves us through the cross. And yet we all face this judgment. So, have you ever noticed um, that when, I, when in our lives we invoke the doctrine of non-judgment? My experience has been this. When we don't want to talk about our sin. You say, whoa, I don't want to judge nobody because I don't want nobody judging me. Ah. See, we, don't want to, we, we know inherently if I'm going to come to you, you're going to come back to me. One of my favorite verses on this, by the way, and it came from a point of clarity. This isn't to brag, but someone in this church, a brother in the Lord, was talking about judgment in the church. And there's that great verse where Jesus says, um, yeah, don't worry about the plank in your brother's eye, right? But first remove the, or don't worry about the, the, the speck in your brother's eye, but first remove the plank from your own eye, and then remove the speck. And, and, and I always, you read that, and you go, so don't ever look at specks in people's eyes. And then a brother in the church, I don't know, name him, Steve Hampshire, he says to me one time, or not me, in a, but in a study, he said, but it says go back and remove the speck. Like, yeah, you deal with your own sin, but then help a brother or sister deal with their sin. It's unloving to not go then and to help someone with a speck. And God knows, God knows for those of you in your life who are egregiously like dealing with your own sin, that I need you to come and help me deal with the sin in my life and say, brother, I see the sin. It's God's purpose for his church, our sin. Often we have those conversations about not judging when we don't deal with our sin. So why would we want this? Okay, so you go, man, nobody likes judgmental people. I get it. Nobody likes judgmental people. Why would we want this? Well, here's some reasons why. Judgment in the church should settle minor disputes. Picking up in verse, chapter 6, verse 1, 
If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent then to judge? And what does the word say there? Trivial cases. Little things. He says, are you not competent to judge these little things? Do you not know that we will judge angels? We're going to talk about that. How much more the things of this life? That's the ordinary stuff of life. We ought to have some discernment and some judgment over. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint um, as judges even men of little account in the church or find someone of wisdom among you. Paul believes that um, this is a normal experience. These are pragmatic things that are being talked about in the church. I know he starts with this huge, egregious sin, but then he starts talking. We're going to get into a list later. He starts talking about the ways we need to be with each other and be sorting out disputes in the church. Um, they're pragmatic matters. And, and he says, if you're, if, if you're believing, and I'm going to talk about a danger of this in a minute, but he's like, if you're believing, uh, why would you, as, a, as one who's redeemed and becoming holy because of the gospel, then turn to unholy people for right discernment? Like, if, if, if you know the God of the gospel, then why are we turning to civil authorities to kind of sort out our stuff amongst us? He says it shouldn't be. As a matter of fact, the word he uses for the other authorities, not that he doesn't respect the authority, but he says that they are not righteous. They're not righteous. And so Paul expects that these, the judgment of the church should settle minor disputes amongst believers. He says in here, we heard it, that saints will judge, the believers will judge the cosmos and the angels. And I, I wrote how. How do we judge angels? I just want to do like a quick little side note here and we'll move on from this. First of all, the quickest thing is, I don't know. I don't know. But I'll tell you what, it's got something to do with our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know what the word says? It says that angels long to look into a relationship like we have with our Savior. It says that the eternal beings that are, we sang this morning, the cherubim in endless flight around his holy throne, that there's these beings, there's a spiritual war happening, but they long to look down to us mere mortals who God gave himself to in an intimate relationship way that they could never experience have, have, like we have. They long to see it. The word says that angels have a party in heaven when one sinner repents. They just go, blow the roof off the place. Why? Because they go, that's so cool. There's a reality that us being in Christ, that we are invited into his righteousness even over the angels. How does this work? A couple ways it might. One is that we somehow, God is above everything. And so in the invitation with Christ, we kind of join him in this ruling authority even over angels that have never betrayed God at all. They've done everything. They're his messengers, his servants. But then there's the there's this other word for angels, and it's called demons. And they're ones who have forsaken the very God who made them. And they'll be judged. They will be judged. Now, do you, ever, do you think, it, I don't think it's going to be us standing aside from God and saying, we judge you. No, 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 no. How do we judge the cosmos, man? I think through tears, right? Because it means that we, we are sinners like everybody else. And we grieve for those who don't repent. 
We talked about that, right? Like, how often do we grieve for sin? And I don't mean like in a fake way, but like, man, that sucks. People are hurting. You're like, yeah, it shouldn't be that way. I keep screwing up. And like, yeah, it shouldn't be that way. And we grieve with sin because there will be a moment of right judgment where there will be separation eternally from God, the righteous and the unrighteous, and we will grieve. This is the function of judgment. Well, that's a big picture that Paul paints. The cosmos and angels, that means all the moons and all the stars and all the universes. Like everything that's out there will be judged, will be witnesses to his righteousness. But then what's he say? So can't you handle a few earthly disputes? Can't you sort out the tiny problems in your life? He expects that it will settle these things before they go to court. He's referring to like ordinary and small things of this life. Now, I want to say this, and, and Steve already said it this morning, but I hope you understand that the authorities that are in charge are appointed by God. You can read Romans 13 and find out that we are subject to earthly authorities by God's sovereign hand. So there's accountability for behavior, and this, one of the ways this gets twisted, and I said I'm going to talk about it just for a second, is that people who get into a religious context say, well, that means there's no implications in the world. That means there's no authority. I don't have to pay any price because I'm a believer, you're a believer, and you're not going to make me pay for that. That's not what this is about. There are, there, there's this idea in the Bible of a sowing and reaping kind of a model of behavior. We sow sinful behavior. We reap the rewards of that behavior. I, I'll tell you a story one time, and this isn't anyone you would know, but a brother came to the Lord. He got, he got in a bunch of trouble with the law, and then he came to the Lord. He read the Bible a whole bunch of times and came to faith. And I believe he was coming to faith. He, came, he had come to faith for real. And then he kept saying, I know God's going to deliver me from prison. I'm not going to have to go. I know it. And you don't know this dude, so don't try to put a name in there because you don't know this dude. But he's just convinced. And he said, pray, pray for me, brother. Pray that I don't have to go because God is going to deliver his righteous people and all that stuff. And the closer we got, it's like, you're going to jail, man. Why? Because you did wrong. And you know what? He went to jail. And God used that season of his life to shape his heart against this false gospel that like, well, I'm, I'm, I don't have to pay any consequences for my behavior. No, you did. You did. But then he got out, he got productive, and he's a believer, and because the gospel is bigger than that. So we misunderstand that sometimes. We think, well, if we sell disputes amongst believers, now I don't have to worry about the worldly authorities. Not necessarily, right? They're appointed by God for his purpose and for our good. Romans 13, you can read it for yourself and see what Paul had to say about authorities. But here's the question, really, because that's heavy stuff. Have you ever seen silly disputes amongst believers? Like just silly, silly stuff. I could think of a whole bunch of stuff, I've, I've not, I've, you know, since I've been a believer, where we get in these, and I'm in, let me ask this question, have you ever been involved in a silly dispute with a believer? <laughs> I have. <laughs> it happens often. The stupidest stuff, and we end up coming to odds and getting heated with each other. Over what? A minor, minor thing. Well, here's the last question I want to ask then. If you've ever seen a silly dispute in the church world, you've ever been involved in a silly dispute in the church world, what did you learn? Because a fundamental following of Jesus is a discipleship position, which means we ought to learn. So when we find, man, why did my heart get twisted up about the way the lights are set up or about the color of the carpet in this room, about the way the chairs are arranged or about whatever it is, you know, about the way, I mean, just the list goes on and on of things we can have disputes about. It's a lost opportunity if we don't say, why is my heart twisted up about that? Why am I so convinced that if I don't get my way on this issue, the gospel won't be pro proclaimed? See, Paul thinks that we ought, he expects 
that there will be wisdom in the church. All right. So moving on now, verse 5, chapter 6. Therefore, if, I'm going to pick up verse 4 this week. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint judges even of a little account in the church. He's like, you can find the least wise person amongst you, and they'll help you settle these silly, trivial disputes you're taking to each other the court over. Verse 5, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's no one among you wise enough to judge the dispute between believers? Remember I said in my prayer this morning, I don't know if you heard it, but like God says if you ask him for wisdom, he's pleased to give it. That there's an expectation Paul has that there's wisdom to be found in the church and not man's wisdom, but God's holy wisdom is to be found in the church. And if we don't have it, we ought to ask for it. But this is part of, and here's the next fill in the blank, body life. It's part of body life. It's a normal experience in the body of Christ, that we would have wisdom from the head, that is Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, God of all the universe. And so Paul assumes there's wisdom in the, in, in the, um, in the church. How do we read that? He says it like this, is there not one among you who can decide between you? Why would I call this body life? That means that if, if you and I cannot agree on something, we go and get a brother or sister and say, can you help us sort this out? And that might be a really hard thing to do. So let's talk about a process about how this works. This is found in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. That's where you can find this. You want to look it up later. But uh, laid out there is a, a way to deal with problems amongst believers. And it says this. If there's a sin amongst you, first go and talk to the brother or sister about the sin. If they've sinned against you and if you've sinned against them, the onus is always on Christians to go and try to resolve conflict. So you go to the two of you. And then after that, if the brother or sister won't listen to you, they're like, I didn't sin again. That's whatever, you know. Then you take one or two more, it says, as witnesses or testimony, not for you. You're not building a posse to go get the unrighteous, <laughs> you know. You're bringing some communal accountability. It's body life. Can you help us sort this out? And maybe it goes, and then you do that. And if that doesn't work, then there's a next step, which is says, then bring them before the church. That's the local church. Bring them in there. Say, so we've got a dispute. Now, you know, if, if we were going to have a competition on, as a gathering like this, or even a special gathering, we'd have it, it would be a big stinking deal. This ought not be color of the carpet. This ought not be, you know, what, it should be a big deal. But the fourth thing in that is always wild to me. And if even then, if the church, the body life accountability, can't bring a repentant heart from a brother or sister, at least a heart that's open to hearing and believing and trying if they're willful in their sin, it says what? Treat them as a pagan or unbeliever. And I always thought, that's interesting. And why would, why would the gospel say that? It's because functionally they are. If, if, listen to me. If you come to me and you say, Bill, I see you sinning in this way, and my response, and I'm talking real talk about me, and my response is, not, is, is like, get out of here with that. I mean, that might be my human response, but if my spirit-led, God-ordained response is not to grieve and question and go, God, is that true? Am I broken this way? And be willing to listen to you and have a dialogue, that demonstrates who I am as a believer. Yeah, it's possible I've sinned in that way. That's almost always my response, even though it's like, yeah, it's possible. And then you have to have a hard conversation with someone about sin and what that looks like. See, Paul expected there to be biblical accountability. I, I got news uh, for you. We've walked through this process at Family Bible Church with folks, and it's been hard. And we do it in love. And we've not done it perfectly, but we've tried because we mean it. 
We believe that God has called us to be his disciples, and he's serious about his people, and he's serious about his spirit's work among us, and therefore we ought to be discerning. You know what that means? That means some of us have had to ask forgiveness of other people in the church. Will you forgive me for that? I had to go back and reflect, how did I sin in that situation? And then confess the sins that God brings to us. This is a matter of settling disputes. It's part of body life, and it's a, it's a gift. All right, so we're going to move now. So Paul's writing to the church. Why is he concerned with this? Okay, so verse 5 says that. I say this to shame you as possible. There's no one wise amongst the believers. But instead, one brother goes to law against another. And then I think this gets to the crux of Paul's problem here. And this in front of unbelievers. Because fundamentally, his concern is that it demonstrates our witness to the world. Now, again, this is not big stuff. If there's big problems, a good witness to the world is we are submitting to the authorities that God has appointed us. We believe that God is the God of all authority. But these trivial little stupid things, when people outside of the church see it, they're like, what are you guys doing? Our family don't fight about that stuff. See, he's concerned for their witness. And all this in front of unbelievers. You go to law, you go to adjudication against a brother or sister in front of unbelievers. You make a spectacle of the church. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have completely lost already, is what Paul says. The fact that you had to go as far as sue a brother or sister, you've already lost. There's this, uh, there's this great idea that um, if, if somebody has to win, everybody's going to lose. I, one of the things I do at Family Bible, I get the pleasure of doing is premarital counseling. <clears throat> and it's always so great for me because it reminds me how bad of a husband I am. I get to go home and repent again with my wife. Um, because there's that idea that if we push to victory, if someone has to be the winner, then everyone in a, a real relationship is going to lose. If I have to dominate you as a brother or sister, then we're all going to lose. And so there's this idea that um, our, our, our witness is tied up in that, right? And so he says, uh, if you've done this, you're already lost. Paul's going to line out some ways. Here's some solutions then. He says, how else can you, if, you, if you're not going to go to the judge, if you can't find one wise person in the church, which, God, which Paul says is not true, of course you can, he has some solutions. Let's read what they are. Verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? That's one solution. Uh, why not rather be cheated? But instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. So Paul kind of lines out three options. First option, if you're having a dispute, it, and a good witness is to find wisdom or help or judgment from amongst the body. Help us sort this out. We all love each other. Help us understand this and find a path forward. The second option, Paul says, is just decide to be wronged. Wouldn't it be better that you be personally wronged in some minor way than you to create a huge stink in the public with a brother or sister? Isn't that a bad witness overall? Or he then asks a third solution. Why not rather be cheated? Why not rather be cheated? Why not rather be wronged? Let me ask a question. What does this have to do with the gospel of Jesus? What does it have to do? Because we've been forgiven so much. The gospel we proclaim is that he had mercy on us, and yet we have no mercy on one another. No, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated, he says. In other words, let it go as an act of faith. In that terrible song, let it go, let it go. I can't sing that song anymore. You know what I mean? 
But do that. But don't do it like let it go. Like I'm letting go, man. I'm above all that. No. God, I believe so much in you. I believe so much in your gospel. I believe so much in your righteousness and your holiness. I believe so much that you want me to become a better believer. I'm going to choose to be cheated and wronged for your glory. Go. <laughs> That's a different way to look at being harmed or hurt. But then Paul comes back and says, but instead you choose to wrong and cheat one another, brothers and sisters. That's the decision you're making, church in Corinth. Here we go. Verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? He asked that question. Do not be deceived. And I'm going to go through a list here. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul just goes right down the list. Harsh stuff. Do you not know? Don't be deceived. Folks that behave this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does this have to do with judgment in the church? I think it's this, that judgment in the church allows for self-reflection. You see, when a brother or sister comes to us and says, I have a concern about your life, it gives us a chance to reflect on our own lives. And Paul says, don't who? You be deceived. Don't you be deceived that these things will not happen in the kingdom of God, that they will not be allowed in the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And then he goes through the list, right? And I'm going to run through here. But it's crazy because he's like, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. The unrighteous, those who are not righteous, will not inherit the kingdom. Here they are. Here's the list he gives out. Sexually immoral. The root word in Greek is super simple to understand in our culture. 2,000 years later, it's pornos. Any twisting or selling of what God calls holy and reverent is pornography. It's pornos. It's not just the things you look at, the things that you watch, but it's the twisting, the cheapening of what God says has great value. That's what, it's really broad, sexual immorality. Anything we do to cheapen a brother or sister, anything we do to lessen uh, who they are and God's intended purpose for sexuality. It's the first thing he lists. Second thing he lists, idolaters. Those who judge by what they see. They pursue things they see. They're idolaters. The third is adulterers. And this would be someone who would not be faithful to their spouse, obviously, but there's the biblical idea is you would transgress in someone else's committed relationship see it's not just for married people you can be a single person who's an adulterer because you're you're messing with someone else's committed marriage relationship he says that's not tolerated in the kingdom the effeminate the the word i think my translation here said something like um let's see where i'm at male prostitutes but it means to anyone that lays down with a man any man that lays down with a man is is uh no that's not true it's effeminate it's to be soft that's right because the next one's lay down with a man so effeminate to be soft to be to be not who god has created you to be and this is a hot button issue right now and i get it i'm not trying to be unkind but he says you know that's not going to be tolerated this kind of flip-flopping back and forth on, on how you feel this isn't something that's a, a mark of a kingdom person and then the next word is homosexuality, which means a man lying with a man in bed, just sleeping with a man. Um, and he says, that's not going to be tolerated. And you know, if you're like me and many people in the church, maybe, maybe you're like, okay, cool, my sin ain't listed. Well, buckle up. 
thieves, people who sneaky take stuff. You know what I'm saying? You go, I'm not a thief. You know, there are thieves who rob in broad daylight. You know, Billy the Kid and train robberies or whatever, bank robberies. You go, oh, those criminals, right? What about those folks who show up at the office and take things home? I want that. Sneaky, stealers, thieves, coveters, those who want what someone else has. They just desire it. They desire more. I just don't have enough yet. They're not going to enter. Drunkards, people who go about imbibing continually too much or imbibe too much occasionally enough that it's too much. Not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Next word, verbal abusers. Oof. Those who speak down to people. Those who are quick with the tongue and quick with the cut. Whew. Swindlers, cheats, corner cutters. Paul says, don't be deceived, church. Those folks aren't going to inherit the kingdom. Don't be deceived. And man, you can't spend too much time in that without being deeply grieved because you start to go, the kingdom of God, then what does it mean for the church? Like that list, it's not for them, it's for us, it's for everybody. And then verse 11 comes, and it comes like a bath of cool water. And so were some of you. And that is what some of you were. You're called out of this life. Church, why do you need judgment in the church? So we're reminded we're called out of this life together. We're not called to continue in these things. That we can have grace because, yes, we were like that, but we're called out of those things. What does it say? Three things I want you to see. You were washed, cleaned, purified. You were sanctified. Look at the word. It's past tense, sanctified, made holy, already true, and yet the church is still struggling with sin. You are already sanctified, and you are justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's the cross, church. So were you, but you've been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and not just that, but the Spirit of God. How could I say so much earlier that if someone comes to you and confronts you with sin, our response, godly response, ought to be to reflect and ask the question because the Spirit examines all things. The Holy Spirit lives in you. I said to you earlier, if you're talking to someone and they say, I'm a believer, one of the questions I usually ask is, so you believe in, in, in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, therefore you believe that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And when I get a yes to that, yeah, the Spirit lives in me, then what does the Spirit say about your sin? Because I've never had a conversation with the Holy Spirit where he's like, your sin's fine, Bill. Go. So he's like, stop it. Don't do that. And that's not me judging for lack of love. It's me saying in love, that's how it is. And if you confront me with my sin, I ought to reflect because the Spirit of God is dwelling in me. Verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial, Paul says. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Another translation says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything's beneficial. So here's the thing. It's not about rights. Judgment is not about rights. So often you hear that conversation. Well, I have the right to do it. Jesus died for all my sins, so I have the right to live how I want to live. It's not about our rights. It's not beneficial is what Paul says. Can you do it? Yeah. Yep. 
See, that's a funny thing that happens in these conversations. I have the right to live any way I want. Yeah, Jesus died for all the sin. Yeah, but Paul says it's not beneficial, and he means that in a communal way. It's not good for the community of faith. It's not good for you. You can do anything. Christ died for all sin, but it's not good for you. And the second thing he says is, I'm not going to be mastered by these things. I'm not going to have some other God that rules in my life that's not Jesus Christ in the Spirit. So the minute something else comes up and says, I'm more important than Jesus, the right response is not, I have the right to do it. It's Jesus is more important than that sin. The gospel is more important. The Spirit's dwelling in me is more important. It's not about our rights. We're going to close here. I will, be, I will not be mastered by anything in verse 12, verse 13. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. That's a worldly view of the world. And God will destroy them both. That's, that sounds like Ecclesiastes, right? It's all coming to nothing anyway. So YOLO. You only live once. Do your thing. Have your fun. I get so discouraged, and I mean this, church, when I see brothers and sisters who have believed the gospel, they've professed the gospel, and they just turn to worldliness and say, I'm just going to have all the fun I can have because this is all I get. What an absolute rejection of the totality of the gospel, of eternal life, of judgment, of the coming kingdom. I grieve for it. I grieve for that. It's a worldly view. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, Paul says, but for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. In other words, the more we leave these things of the world, the more we leave them behind the, the list. And not the ones that get your neighbor, the ones that get you. The more you walk away from that stuff and say, I'm going to stop doing that stuff because it's not becoming of a Christian, the more the Lord is with us and we begin to feel his righteousness in us. Not our righteousness, but his righteousness. The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is a truth claim. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. What's this mean? That there's resurrection power in fighting sin. He will raise us also. Why would Paul talk about resurrection there at the end of this conversation about sin in the church? Because he has empowered us by the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead to do battle with sin in our life. And we ought to know that. As a matter of fact, judgment in the church demonstrates or shows God's power and his spirit. It demonstrates his power of resurrection and his spirit. By the power that God raised the Lord from the dead, he will also raise us. In this moment and in the, the time of resurrection, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the member of Christ and unite it with a prostitute? No way. 16, do, not, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute becomes one with her in flesh? There's the call. That's a marriage call. We choose to participate and we unite ourselves with a, an unfaithful woman or an unfaithful person, an unfaithful man. Figuratively there, right? the sin. The two will become one flesh, he says, but he who unites himself with the Lord is united with him in his spirit or in spirit or in our spirit. And so we have this unity of the flesh. One of the ways that the Bible understanding of, of uh, marriage gets kind of twisted is we think, well, the marriage promises are married people only. That's not true. The marriage promises that we see demonstrated in marriages are for this life only human marriages, but it's a, a, it's, a, it's a glimpse, it's a tiny look at the commitment that God has to his bride. And all of us who believe have it. 
So if you're single, you're not left out of the covenant promise of a, of a marriage commitment. The two become one flesh, the word says. He's uniting his people together in his body. You're united with the Lord in spirit. And Paul's holding that up as the highest elevation that this power demonstrated in the fighting of sin and this spirit's presence in the middle of our transgressions, in the middle of our struggle, is a gift from God. So what's the answer? Verse 18, run away. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits is outside of their own body, but the one who sins sexually sins against themselves, their own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. See, Paul, going right back to the cross, therefore honor God with your body. This idea that we have the demonstration, and I just want to close with this, but listen to me. When you're struggling, when a brother or sister does confront you or you're confronting yourself, take the opportunity to reflect and then, but don't just surrender and go, oh, I'm lost. Oh, it's hopeless. Oh, I can never be right or whatever. That's not true. You know what happens in that moment? You say, God, I need your power. God, I can't do this without you. I want to talk to you this morning. Maybe there's something you've been struggling with for a long time and you're like, man, you don't even know how many years I've fought and battled and tried to muster, tried to do something of my own ability. It's not about you doing it alone. The final answer is you go to God and you say, God, I need your help. I need to taste some resurrection power in this part of my life. I mean that, church. And in the middle, in the middle of whatever sin your besetting sin is, God makes a path through it. He brings light into it. And then you know what we do? We celebrate and we go, wow, that was so different than the last time. <laughs> whatever it is, didn't spend as long there didn't do that, did a little less, move. It's called sanctification, church. Why? Because he's serious about redeeming us. So I don't know what you're struggling with today. I'm going to close. I don't know what it is, and I'm not trying to put something in your mind. So if you go, Bill, man, I ain't struggling with no sin. I go, okay, good for you. I bet I don't know. But whatever it is, I want us to cry out to God together in a sincere way and say, God, would you help us through this? And I want to ask one more thing, that we encounter people. Look, this is all inside the church. So let's don't tisk-tisk the people outside the church. Because so were you. And so was I. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the power of your word and for the conviction of your Holy Spirit and the way you move amongst your people. And Lord, I want to confess that we don't do this well. I feel like we were much more comfortable living in a live and let live society where no one really knows us and we don't know them and we don't have to confess any sin and we don't have to be confronted with sin. And, and yet, Father, I read your scriptures and, and I want to be part of a church like that. I want to be part of a church that's full of grace and truth. I want to be part of a church of redeemed people. And I know my brothers and sisters want that too. We don't want to make up problems and invent things, Lord, but for those things that we struggle with, those, those sins that maybe other people would say, that's not even a big deal. But Father, if you're bringing it to mind for us, it is a big deal. Would you help us to sort that out? Oh God, for the ways that we think the sin's too much. For the ways that we don't acknowledge you as all-powerful, all authority. And we say, yeah, Jesus is pretty good, but he can't, he can't cover that sin. He doesn't know. Father, I confess that, that that's a lie. 
that, that we, we misunderstand the depth of your love for us when we think sin is greater than you. Would you help us to surrender that to you? Those big things that we think are insurmountable, Father. And then I'm going to join the church in the cry, that God, would you help us in our sin? Would you help us walk it out? Would you help us become your redeemed people? May you be glorified. We love you so much, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to journey together in following Jesus. Amen.